Amen. Thank the team, would you, for leading you there? So as the uh, events of the, the week unfolded, I would imagine that your emotions were similar to mine. And, and they could be, you know, the polar opposite at any given moment, but we all have gone through many of the same things. And I'm familiar with some of your stories and maybe even some of your values and the way that you see things. And uh, I'm even familiar with how some of you have hopes and dreams about the future or maybe how you voted or how you hope things eventually turn out or where things go. I, there's families in our church that are divided as well and that uh, find themselves on opposite ends of the political spectrum, even under the same roof. And you can imagine what this is like. I mean, have you ever been on a roller coaster and you thought, I mean, it was fun the first two minutes, but I'd just like to get off now. I'd just like for this thing to be over or, you know, something like that. And as the events unfolded, my mind kept going back to certain scriptures. And so I went kind of on a process this week that helped me get to a place of peace uh, and hope and all those kinds of things. And so it's connected to Ephesians 2 in a way, and we'll get there before we're done today. But I just want to take you on that same path with me, if you don't mind. And maybe for at least part of what we'll share today, you know, just imagine me more friend than pastor. I think when you think pastor, you think, you know, well, he's telling me how it is. Um, and I would never even want you to think that. That's not my view of pastor. My view of pastor is, is that we're sort of fellow strugglers. We're just trying to figure it out. You know, we're just kind of all of us walking around with blindfolds on in a very complicated world. And, you know, I just happen to be the one for this moment that has a microphone. So we're all on this little journey together. And my guess is, is that there are some places in Scripture that might provide you a bit of hope and might give you a place of peace, which, of course, is exactly what Jesus wants. If you've been reading this passage out of Ephesians 2, just these 11 through 22, this, this one section of Scripture, we've been in it for a few weeks so you know that Jesus was born, came into the world, and we'll celebrate that through Advent next month. You know that he didn't really begin his ministry until he was about 30 years old. So there's this big section of time that we don't know much except for one little story about Jesus and his life. And that his ministry lasted about three years. He called some disciples and he did some amazing things. Have you ever stopped to wonder why the Jewish people didn't generally accept Jesus as Messiah. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever read the Gospels and you think, how come they don't get it? I mean, look at what he's doing. Look at what's happening. Look at what is right in front of their very eyes. How come they don't think he is the Messiah? Well, the Jewish understanding of Messiah or the anointed one comes from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, the prophets, the people that stood up and said, here's what's coming, here's what's going to happen. This is where they got their understanding of what God's anointed one or the one that he would send would be like. And they were very specific, Isaiah and Jeremiah and many others were very specific about what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And some of the things that they wrote in the Old Testament you could almost read them with a political lens and believe that, well, the Jewish people had a very specific expectation of who Jesus was going to be and who the Messiah would be. 
And when Jesus showed up, he was nothing like that at all. And when you have that lens, when you read the Gospels, it makes complete sense why the Jewish people, by and large, did not believe that Jesus was the one that God had sent. They did not believe he was the Messiah. Let me take you through just a little journey of his ministry with this lens in mind. Jesus begins his ministry. He does some pretty amazing things. Very early in John, he uh, heals some people and begins teaching. And when he begins teaching, a crowd begins to gather and they gather and Jesus teaches them a good part of the day. And when he gets done teaching them, he realizes, well, we got to take care of business with them. I mean, we, we can't just you know, have kept them here all day. So Jesus feeds them and he provides what they needed. And it's a pretty powerful moment in the gospel of John early on chapter six. And the people see Jesus, they see what he's done, they pay attention to what he's done, and they can't believe how powerful and amazing this is. And they look at Jesus, they've had their free lunch, right? You know, there's no free lunch. Well, Jesus gave a free lunch. And so he gave this free lunch, and they're just, they're in awe, and they want to follow him wherever he would go. And this is what the people say about Jesus. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, that specifically sign, that's what he took food and multiplied it and fed you know, thousands of people with a little bitty lunch. You know the story. After they saw it, that Jesus had performed it, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Word was getting around about Jesus. People were starting to pay attention. You know, He had showed up at this wedding and turned water into wine. They're like, hey, that's cool. That's kind of neat. Not everybody can do that. And then he begins to heal people. Earlier in John, he had healed a man that was famously an invalid. And they're like, I don't know. Maybe he's the guy. Maybe he's the one. And now that they have been fed, which I get, I mean, I like being fed. They say, surely he is the one. The very next verse that's recorded, John writes this. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come, and what? Say it with me. Make him king by force. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Why would they think that? I've already told you, the prophets kind of lean that way a little with their language, politically speaking. But there's another reason that they thought this. When Jesus was born, especially when he began his ministry, the people of Judea and the greater area surrounding Jerusalem, they were not their own country. They were not their own state. They were not an independent people. They were under the oppression, under the jurisdiction, under the political authority of the Roman Empire. And when Jesus comes along, the Jewish people begin to think, now... Maybe this will change. That the Jewish people would have their own identity isn't just something that they wished for or just wanted because they were selfish people. It was promised by God that they would have their own identity. In fact, all the way back before Jewish people were Jewish people, before the Hebrews were Hebrews, before it was even a name, God promised this to Abraham. And he said, I will make you into a great, what? A nation. 
and I will bless you. And all the people that you bless, I will bless. And I will bless all people through you. And so the Jewish people deeply believed that because they were under oppression, that they weren't fulfilling what God had intended for them. And that God Almighty had promised a different future for them. And that the Messiah would be the one that would bring it about. This is what they thought. And they believed they understood it perfectly from all of their history. And Jesus knew that if the Jewish people were given the chance, they would make him king by force. And Jesus didn't want anything to do with that. You often hear people say that Jesus didn't talk about politics much. No, not in the Sermon on the Mount. Or he, you know, he very rarely referenced Rome. He didn't talk about politics overtly very much. But the entire fabric of all of the Gospels is centered around this whole political mess that they're in. Everything is political. His death was political. His arrest was political. His trial was political. Politics forms the very nature of everything that unfolded, the tension that was felt during his ministry. In fact, during the middle of his ministry, after things kind of heat up in the Jerusalem, the Jews, the leaders, they kind of pay attention to Jesus and these, the common rabble, they want to make him king by force. Jesus decides in his ministry that he can't be anywhere near Jerusalem, which is, of course, the hotbed of not just political activity in Judea, but religious activity. And so Jesus then takes his ministry out into the outer lands, Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. This is why he spends so much time there, because he can't, he can't go near the city. The city is too hot. It's going to cause a problem. And so he spends his time out away from the conflict that's brewing in Jerusalem. Near the end of his ministry... He's got the beginning. Let's go to the end. Near the end of his ministry, he's making his way back to Jerusalem for the last time. You know what happens in Jerusalem during his last visits? Feast of Passover, everything kind of bubbles up and boils over, and Jesus is ultimately crucified. He's making his way back to Jerusalem for the last time. The disciples are aware. They're fully aware of all the political tension that surrounds Jesus. And they're making their way down the road and see Jerusalem in the distance. And James and John feel like, well, the time is coming near. We're about to kind of step back into the center of the ring. It's going to happen. This is going to really go down. The disciples can feel it. Everyone can feel it. And as they're making their way back, Jesus is kind of walking ahead with the disciples James and John, they want a little privacy with Jesus, so they hurry on ahead a little bit, catch up with Jesus, because they want to have a little conversation with him before they get to the city. And this is the conversation they have. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, what do they say? You've said it to Jesus before, right? Some of your prayers have been just like this this week. Say it with me. We want you to do us a favor. So God, if you're paying attention... You know, I know the last 12 things I asked for, you kind of ignored, but how about this one? Would you do this one for me? Just this one thing. Is it ever this one thing? Nah, you got 10 more behind it, don't you? Come on. 
We want you to do us a favor. And Jesus looks at them and says, what's your request? Let's talk about it. What would you like? They're coming to Jerusalem. They know it's about to go down. And they want to put dibs in. Because this is what they believe. Here's what they say. So James and John replied, when you sit on your, your what? Your glorious throne. Now you may have read this, this little request that they make and, and believe that they're imagining a future heavenly kingdom and the, you know, Jesus in glory up above the earth. That's not what they're thinking at all. They fully believe that there's gonna be a political conflict that will ensue when they hit Jerusalem and they're right. That's exactly what happens. They know what's gonna occur. They feel it, they've heard about it. They sense it as they're getting near the city. And they say, look, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. I mean, we don't want the place of honor. We know that's just for you, Jesus. I mean, you deserve the very center place of honor. You're the king. You're the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. You're the one who's doing all the amazing things that we see. So we believe that you are gonna have your way when this conflict occurs. But when you get there, when you're on your throne, we would like to be just, you know, next in line, on your right and on your left. In other words, James and John are thinking this. We've been under Rome's thumb for years. We have not had our own identity as a nation, but now that's about to change. Why do they think it's about to change? Well, they've seen everything Jesus can do. They know what he can do, and they fully believe that he's gonna take care of business. This passage is the ultimate, my rabbi can beat up your rabbi passage. (laughs) This is what they believe. The one we follow, I mean, the rest of the ones before him, they were charlatans. But Jesus, I mean, he, I mean, you know, if we get killed in battle, he's going to go, you know, John, come back to life, and we'll just start fighting again. This is exactly how it's going to go down. Jesus is going to win. Rome is kicked out. And then we have won. We have won. This is what they believe. Jesus knew what was in their hearts and he would not be made king by force. He would not. And Jesus has a little chat with him. He says, you, you, don't, you don't even know what you're asking. He doesn't. James and John both. You don't know what you're asking. And they had a little chat about it. It's worth your time to read it in Mark chapter 10, a few other places in the gospels as well. It's almost as if Jesus was saying to the disciples, especially those two, and the other disciples get involved too. They get wind of what's going on and they're pretty aggravated as well. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, you're concerned about the oppression of Rome. You're concerned about your current circumstances. Think bigger. Think bigger. You're concerned about here, right now, You remember the little statement that Jesus made when the discussion about the poor was going on? It sounds like one of the most callous things that somebody that has compassion would ever say. Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. You're concerned about right now. Think bigger. You want to be liberated politically. But even if we kick Rome out, you'll still be in bondage. The trajectory of the Gospels 
tells a story that is my story, and it is your story too. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to James and John and the rest of the disciples, because you remember what happens in the garden, right? He gets arrested, Peter shows up, whacks a guy's ear off, right? They're ready for what? A political rebellion. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to the disciples over and over again this very same thing. You can't solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. You can't. That doesn't mean political solutions aren't good or important or helpful or critical. It doesn't mean that people who follow Jesus shouldn't be involved in politics. Oh, my goodness sakes. Can you imagine what a mess we would be in if people who follow Jesus weren't involved in politics? You know that there are moral problems and they have moral solutions. You know there are ethical problems. There are systemic problems. And they all have either ethical or systemic solutions. But Jesus came to free them from a bondage that they couldn't see. And Jesus wanted them to know, you can't solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. In other words, what Jesus is saying, same thing my dad taught me in the workshop, you have to have the right tool for the job. Have you ever tried to do a job with the wrong tool because it was what was handy? What happens? You break it. You get hurt. You wish you would walk the 30 feet into the garage to get the right tool. You got to call a repairman now. Or worse yet, get the stitches you didn't think you needed. Trip to the ER. You have to have the right tool for the job. And Jesus wants his disciples to know, you can't solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. It's deeper than that. Think bigger. Jesus gets arrested when they get to Jerusalem. He has this little chat with Pilate. And Pilate, it's a great, great, incredible piece of the, the end of the, the story of Jesus. Pilate has this chat with Jesus, and he says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus looks at Pilate and says, is this your idea, or you've been talking to people about me? It's incredible. They talk about truth and what is truth. Very philosophical. It's incredible. There you have this, this Roman political leader, Pilate, who has immense authority. And then you have Jesus, this Jewish nobody from Nazareth who stands there, beaten, bloodied, with a crown of thorns around his head. And they're discussing philosophy and politics. Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? He says, is this your idea or does somebody else give it to you? And he says, well, it's your own people. They brought you in here. They arrested you. What have you done? And then Jesus looks at Pilate and says what I believe he was trying to communicate to the disciples all along. He says this, Jesus answered, say it with me, all of you, with a little bit of conviction. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. One translation says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's probably the translation you might remember best. Jesus says, I have a kingdom and I am king of it. And there are things going on in that kingdom, but my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If you've read this passage in Ephesians chapter two, then you have read that Paul says, and it's not just in Ephesians, it's in Philippians and other letters as well, that you and I, we are citizens of what? Heaven, you have a passport. 
you have an identity. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are citizens of heaven. Because Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus dies, killed, Roman crucifixion, killed as a common thief, would be killed. Three days in the tomb, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not Easter, but we know what happens, right? The resurrection occurs. He gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to the disciples. It's a few months after the church is born, in the middle of all of that, the Jewish people are still, every day, under Rome's oppression. Nothing has changed regarding their political circumstances. I mean, if you know history and you know what was actually happening between the Jews and the political leaders, you would almost believe for a second that Jesus cares nothing about liberation. You would almost think that. You would almost think that Jesus cares nothing about actual freedom. You would almost be of the opinion that Jesus believes that there, it doesn't even matter who's in charge or who's actually on the, you know, the throne, the literal throne that sits in Rome at the time, but that the fact that the Jewish people don't have their own identity that God promised all the way back in the beginning of Genesis didn't matter to him at all. He came, he died, he resurrected, and he went back to heaven, and there sit the Jewish people under Rome's oppression. Jesus, do you care nothing about freedom at all? Well, as it turns out, Jesus spoke about freedom a lot. He cares deeply about your freedom. In fact, freedom is why Jesus came. Jesus said this in a discussion with some Jewish people about their own freedom. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching... You're really my disciples. If you do what I say, if you hold to my teaching, not the law, my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, say it with me, and the truth will. Freedom was the center of the gospel. If you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. Now remember, Truth isn't an idea. Truth isn't a doctrine. Truth isn't a newscast. Truth isn't the thing you know that you discovered. Truth isn't a conspiracy theory. That's not what truth is. In the Gospels, truth is a person, and it's capital T. The truth is Jesus. Do you remember what he said? I am the what? The way and the and the life. This is what truth is. I am the truth. And they kind of argued about truth with him a little bit. So Jesus had to say it again and we said it again. He wanted to be sure they caught it this time. And so Jesus did this clearly and he says this, but look, if the son sets you free, you will be what? 
the, the Greek there is pretty good. You will be free for certain. You will be absolutely free. Your freedom will be not in question. Your freedom will be secured. So let me ask you, how's your freedom this week, this month, the last six months? How's your freedom? Now, I'm not talking about where you can go and where you can eat and what you have to do and don't have to do. I'm talking about the freedom that Jesus was talking about. Because apparently you can experience freedom and be under Rome's oppression. Apparently you can be free and somebody else be telling you what to do. So what do you think Jesus meant by freedom? When Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free. How free? Indeed. You can be really free. I don't know if I'm free. Ah, how's your freedom? What are you not free from this week? Anxiety? Fear? Anger? Hostility? What are you not free from? What seems to follow you into your bed and be there at two in the morning when you wake up? What are you wringing your hands over? What are you claiming and clinging to? Jesus says, when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. How is your freedom? If you're gonna love well, you have to have freedom. You can't have freedom and not love. They're interlinked, inextricably linked. Freedom and love go hand in hand. How is your freedom? What are you not free from? Disciples woke up on the day of Pentecost and watched the church get born and the freedom that they experienced was unlike anything else they had ever lived through and they were still under Rome's impression. Are you free? And if you're not, Remember what Jesus says. Well, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What do you need to give up? What do you need to lay at his feet? Do you remember what it says in Ephesians 2? Remember the passage we looked at last week? For he himself is our peace. Peace isn't based on a treaty or Peace isn't based on an election outcome. Peace isn't based on you and I agreeing that we're going in the right direction. Even peace between me and you, it's not, it's not based on any of that. Peace isn't based on you asking for forgiveness or me even deciding that we belong together in the same crew. He himself is our peace means that peace isn't an idea either. Peace comes alone from Jesus. And he has made the two groups, you pick whatever two groups you want, it's all the same. Paul was writing about Jews and Gentiles, but you can fill in the blanks with whatever you want. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How's your hostility? And how does it look across our country? Is the dividing wall of hostility destroyed? Nah, it's pretty strong, isn't it? Why? Why is that the case? And what about for you? Because change doesn't happen globally in a macro way. Change happens when I look at you knowing I am free and I can love you with agape love 
that is true and deep. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think, no matter who you voted for, then between me and you, the dividing wall of hostility is gone. We spent, this is now a third sermon on this passage in Ephesians. There's one little piece that we've left for this last week that just really, I'm really glad we left it for this moment in our history. When this passage begins and Paul's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and the dividing wall of hostility and that Jesus has set aside the law and because of that they can come together as one. They don't have to be groups of circumcision and the groups of non-circumcision. This, this, these two groups that have had enmity and, and disagreement and hatred between them for really all of history just about have now become one. This whole passage begins with this one word, therefore. This one word, which means you got to go back a little bit, right? So Paul's describing how the dividing wall of hostility goes away, and he's describing how the two groups have become one, but he starts this passage with therefore. What in the world did he say right before this entire section in Ephesians? He said this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Two verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's a summary of the gospel. Let's say it all together, both verses beginning to end. If you're watching at home online, say it with us. The words from your mouth begin to find their way into your heart. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. How have the two groups become one? Because Jesus has fulfilled the law. What was the law for most Jewish people? It was a measuring stick that measured how moral or ethical or holy you were so that you could now come before God in a good and thoughtful way. And Paul says that's not what the law was for anyway. And so Jesus sets aside the law completely, but even though he did that, we don't live by the Old Testament, we take words of the New Testament and decide, well, I mean, that was a good idea the Jews had. Let's make our own law. Let's make our own list of laws. Let's take what Paul wrote, and we don't need 10 commandments. We could do with, I don't know, 347 commandments, couldn't we? And so we decide who is holy and who is not holy based on what? Based on their behavior, based on how they choose, based on how they live. What are we deciding? Who is worthy enough to come before God's presence? Who is holy enough to be my friend? Who is holy enough or moral or ethical enough to walk hand in hand with me? And the only thing that levels the ground is the cross. And Paul says, you've been saved by grace. And it is, say it with me again, not from yourselves. You didn't do anything to earn it. Even the laws of the New Testament aren't a measuring stick for your morality. I mean, you should live by them, but you're going to fail every day, don't you? Even those of you who believe that lying is reprehensible find yourself, oh, it's okay to lie now. You don't even live up to the same standards that you hold other people to. It's okay. I'm the same as you. We're all like that. That doesn't mean that sin is acceptable. It means that we're fallen men and women who have fallen only on the grace of God. 
That's all. In other words, we're all the same. You're not my struggle. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're in this family, one new humanity together. Even if we disagree on some of the most fundamental things, we're in this together. Paul gives you a clue at the end of Ephesians. He says, and I bet you can finish this sentence for me. We haven't even preached about it yet. For our struggle is not against what? My fight's not with you. It's a different struggle altogether. Me and you, we're in this together. Jesus said it differently than, than Paul did. Paul gives us this large theological language. Jesus said it very plainly, and he said it in three words. He simply said what? Do not judge. Do not judge. Oh, that's, that's how Jesus is. Man, like a scalpel to the point, he just cuts it out. Do not judge. When Jesus said do not judge, he wasn't giving you another commandment to obey. He was giving you freedom to step into. Aren't you, try, aren't you tired of trying to decide who's right and wrong? Aren't you tired of trying to figure out what's true and what's not true? Aren't you weary from the weight of being the judge and the jury? Come on, you're not meant to carry that kind of weight. That kind of burden, that's not for you. That's for God and God alone. Do not judge. Jesus was not giving you a commandment to obey. He was inviting you into freedom and liberation so that you could decide, it's not my job to figure out if you're worthy or not, or smart or thoughtful or politically savvy or been duped by this or that. It's my job to love you. And this is how the kingdom grows. Because Jesus says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. I don't know what will unfold over the next days or weeks to come, but I do know this. God is looking for men and women who will build a kingdom that is not earthly, who will love in spite of their own failings, and build the kingdom through grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's what he's looking for. You want to join him? Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that we would surrender all this to you. We wouldn't begin to even be able to guess what direction we should go or how we should go, how we should proceed. But Lord, our prayer is that we would love with an abandon the same abandon that, that God gives to us. So the scriptures tell us, Father, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. This is the essence of grace. It's not on our merit or what we do or how smart we are or politically savvy we are. because you made us in your image and you want to walk with us every day and so we surrender to you. Lord, we give up this terribly impossible job of judging. We want to judge. We want to be right. We want to know. We want to find what we think is the truth. But Lord, we confess today that the truth is not an idea or a theory 
or even a set of facts. Lord, we proclaim as a church body that the truth is a person and the truth is embodied only in who Jesus is. And so we embrace that. We want to walk with you, Lord. So Lord, help us to lay down this piece of our job description that does not belong to us. This idea of judgment. Oh, Lord, give us the wisdom to know what that means. Doesn't mean we don't have opinions or thoughts. It means we love first, knowing that we're often wrong and it'll get sorted out in the end. So help us to open-handedly trust you and believe and know. Lord, we surrender to you now. And when we surrender, it means that we want your way, not our way. We want what you want, not what we want. 